0: Short and Associates, legal recruiters in Louisiana and Texas.
1: From our socially distanced virtual lunch table in Lafayette, we're Out to Lunch with Christian
2: Mader, publisher and editor of The Current. It's business Acadiana style. Welcome to Out to Lunch. I'm Christian Mader. Before the folks behind Beausoleil Books built a coffee shop or a bar to go inside their new boutique, they checked with their neighbors, the cafes and bars in downtown Lafayette, and they settled on a wine bar, something new to the fabric of Jefferson Street and something that wouldn't compete. That's the shop-local response to behemoth retail, collaboration, neighborliness. Brian Dupre and his three business partners created Soleil to bring literature and ideas to Lafayette and to celebrate the French language. They stock new fiction and classics and cookbooks in English and in French. And their wine bar, The Whisper Room, is going to be coming later. Um, Brian, thanks for joining me on Out to Lunch.
3: Thanks for having me.
2: A big part of what you get at a local shop like Beausoleil is personalized experience. And there's nothing more personal than style, especially when what you wear is fashioned by hand, like a work of fine art, perhaps. Uh, Hat maker Colby Hebert's shop, the Cajun Hatter, is another newcomer to downtown Lafayette. But his hats have been in demand since he first started making them in 2016. His brand took off in New Orleans, where he also spent time in the film industry, both as an actor and in costumes. Uh, he found his way back to Acadiana in 2020. Uh, hat making has seen something of an explosion recently, actually. And four years ago, Colby was only one of a few dozen hat makers in the U.S. Today, there are hundreds. Being a Cajun hatter makes Colby still uh, one of a kind. Colby, Hebert, welcome to Out to Lunch.
1: That's beaucoup.
2: So uh, Brian, Bosley Books is the first uh, independent bookstore to open in Lafayette, like since the '70s, and in, in some ways, it feels like a no-brainer that you'd have like a downtown area independent bookstore. It's something you see in downtown areas uh, everywhere. On the other hand, I mean, online retail has really been king in the book world because you know virtually any book you want is on demand. So I would think that curation has to be your edge. Um, what raises kind of this question for me? So how, how do you select books for a market like Lafayette that's like, broad enough to draw in? Uh, your casual buyers, but specialized enough to find a you know niche audience that's going to support you.
3: Yeah, no, I think you raised the the right point. It's because you can buy anything online, you can literally buy anything online. And so then you get overwhelmed with what you should actually buy. Uh, so that's when you rely on someone maybe to kind of give you ideas or suggestions of what you should buy. And that's what we do, you know, at Beausoleil Books. We, um, sort of take out a part of the homework for you and give you our suggestions on what we are reading or have read or want to read ourselves. Uh, Sometimes we sell books that we haven't read yet. And I say, hey, after you read it, come back and let me know how that went, you know, so um, it's a collaborative effort with us in the community to, to, um, to just learn really together.
2: So when you guys kind of put that first inventory together, I mean, how did you decide, you know, look, I mean, at the end of the day, you got limited space, even if you got a big bookstore, your bookstore's pretty, pretty reasonably sized. I mean, how did you decide what books to put in there before you had customers? Right?
3: Yeah. So there's four of us who run the store, who own the store. And, um, we each sort of took our sections on. So, uh, based on our own interests, which luckily are very varied. So for example, me, I, curate the books in the French language section of the store, um, which of course runs all the genres within one little section, uh, but they're all in French. I curate the local interest section um, and the cookbook section. And then another, um, my partner Blair, for example, she curates romance and a lot of the fiction books. And then um, my husband, James, who's one of the owners also, he curates the science fiction section. That's his, you know, area of the store and like history really old history books that he enjoys. And so we all have different things, you know, India loves young adult fiction and we've worked together to um to put the store together. Yeah.
2: That's great. So I mean, you guys really put a personal touch on that. Um you know, Colby, you've put a personal touch on sounds like about a thousand hats in your career if I understand that correctly and, I, and I'm not sure I've made a thousand of of anything so you know, kudos to you for, for pulling that off um but you know at the same time I'm also thinking like when you're talking retail a thousand of anything is actually not that much so I mean how are you able to you know make a living doing this at such low volume I and mean, do people really pay that much for hats
1: Sure. Um, so, yeah, it, basically, with the, the quality of the, the hats that we're making, um, it kind of goes back to yesteryear when everybody was walking around with a hat on their head, you know, in the 30s and 40s. Um, and, you know, at that time, I think it was generally somewhere as a, around a, a, about a two week income is what um, a, a man might typically pay on a hat. Uh, you know, because back in those days, and I think we're kind of coming back to that, it's more important, which is, uh, you know, the quality and the last, the, the, uh, you know, how long something's going to last, you know, how well made something is, is becoming important again. And so, um, you know, when you invest in something like a a hat made out of Nutria fur, for example, which is really cool what we're doing, but also beaver fur, which is, um, I would say traditionally the most common, you know, and the most high quality kind of go-to, um, you know, that's something that's going to outlive the wearer. So when someone's paying, you know, upwards of $1,000 on, on a hat at that cost, you kind of divide that up between, you know, where you're at and I guess the rest of your life. And uh, especially if you're someone like a cowboy, for example, who really depends on uh, the hat, you know, going out in the elements, the rain, the sun, that kind of thing. Um, it's kind of a uniform accessory that's dependent on, uh, you, you know, sort of a tool even you know, as a part of your trade and your lifestyle. Um, so, so yeah. At that, at that point, you know, the kind of hats that we work on, there's nothing that we've got that's. I think the um, our lowest price point is is about uh, three hundred dollars, which is one of the straw hats that's sold in the store. So most of our hats that we sell are about five hundred to a thousand. Um, you know, some some uh, over that, and you know, at that point, like I said, it's kind of we're sitting here meeting with an individual, um, you know, curating kind of their style, their uh, their sense of, of who they are, their fashion, their, their features um, from head to toe, you know, looking at all of those things, taking those things into account, and then creating kind of the ideal hat design for them uh, that's made right there in the back of the shop on Jefferson Street in Lafayette, Louisiana. You know, it's as local as it gets and um, very little le- electricity is used. So, um, you know, we can take our time and do things right and, um, you know, almost five years in, the the, the average blue collar or, you know, middle class individual is very willing to invest in that. Because, you know, when you come down to the shop, you kind of get it and realize it and you experience the product and uh, learn a bit more about, you know, just how much goes into it.
2: So it's really interesting that, I mean, it used to be that, you know, that much of a sort of a standard accessory that we kind of had a benchmark <laughs> pricing for it, right? That, that we would sort of like a man would spend. Right. Two weeks pay on a hat that used to be such a custom thing and it seems like maybe hats at some point in time it, it become less of a thing that everybody does and so it kind of has me wondering like what is the typical hat customer like at this point i mean i think you know it could you know on the one hand you kind of like people wearing you know fascinators at the kentucky derby and other like baseball hats but what you do is kind of seems like in a in a in a, in a, in a narrower channel of a niche so, so what is your customer like are they coming and asking for stetsons i mean what's happening
1: so essentially, um, I'd say my hats are really just everyday hats. Um, you know, when you go to someone like a milliner who's going to create a fascinator or, um, you know, a, a Kentucky Derby hat, um, it, those things are kind of more event oriented, you know, where what I do is very much more uh, just an everyday approach, something that you can, you can wear, you can throw on any day of the year with just about any outfit, not really think too hard about it, just grab your hat and put it on and get your use out of it. Um, that being said, uh, I, you know, I would say it's, it's almost kind of the opposite of, of what you might've suggested as far as for the niche. I think it's actually more of a, of a, of an open, uh, an open, a more open approach because, you know, those, those other styles are very kind of specified. Whereas what we do, you know, kind of translates and across the board with, uh, you know, dressing up, dressing down back in the day. Um, I say back in the day, what I mean to say is like, 2005 or something like that people started you know in that era people started wearing you know sports jackets with a pair of jeans you know and that kind of thing and it kind of really opened up this approach in fashion where we can take something that might have traditionally been considered dressy uh or formal and then kind of mixing it in with a more casual element of fashion and you know with that approach um it's really you know kind of brought hats back to uh or, or made people realize nowadays, like that hats can be worn a lot more commonly. And, you know, with our, our, the way that we, uh, we dress now, you know, it's not out of place. So that being said, it's, there's a hat, you know, for everyone, I don't think by any means that, um, most of my clientele are wealthy or coming to, to get this as a luxury, a luxury item, although the, you know, that's out there most of my clients are really just, uh, regular people like, like us, um, you know, who, who like hats and want to get into it.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, you're working, you know, you're, you're trying to make the hat for everyone. Brian, I guess you guys, to some extent are trying to stock books, you know, for everyone. And one thing I, you know, took notice of is, you know, uh, you have your selection in store, but you guys are also able to, to partner with online retailers, right? I mean, so you know, you kind of get a, a degree to which is the best of both worlds with like you know, Bookshop and 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 Libro. I mean, how is that actually working out for you as an independent seller? I mean, do you find that folks would you know they say they want to get the new Amanda Gorman book, right? And and so they're going to order it through you guys, and they think, okay, I'm going to call Bocelli and and get that through them. Are people going to Bookshop? I mean, like, how, how does that kind of mix of online you know, in-store retailing actually working out for the independent seller?
3: Um, Yeah. I mean, it's working out pretty well, actually. So we have multiple options. You can come in the store and buy a book. You can call, you know, and we can pull a book for you. You can, we can hold it, you know, over the phone. Um, You can order through our website, which is still getting all of our inventory in the store is still being uploaded to the website. So it's not all there yet. And then we have Bookshop. So Bookshop, um, if you access it through our affiliate link, uh, you can buy any book pretty much that you can buy on Amazon, for example, and have it shipped directly to your home. And it doesn't actually require us to pull the book out of our own inventory. Sometimes books, we may only have one or two copies of being a small store. You can buy it through Bookshop and have it sent to your house. And it never actually requires us to lose our copy and have to restock it. Um, and we still receive a portion of the, of the proceeds from that. So it's really a good way. And a lot of um, our bookshop sales have come from people out of state uh, or out of town who want to support the store, but aren't here to physically support it. So they order through bookshop.
2: Are you guys carrying stuff that, you know, would actually be kind of difficult to find in Amazon or in a bigger store? I mean, I, I know if, to the extent that you might you know, specialize or there might be some selection of, you know, French language books or even local authors. I mean, is that something that, you know, kind of offers you kind of your own sort of local advantage to the extent that you have, you know, stuff here that you might have in greater um, quantity or, or just again, that the fact that you have it, people are, can be aware of it. Right. Is it, does that make sense? Like the extent to which, like being a local bookstore, you kind of have your eye on this specific thing and that actually provides an advantage going outward to the broader market.
3: Yeah. Well, so our, um, I mean, our French selection is definitely something that sets us apart because you just aren't going to find that in the other uh, bookstores in town. Um, and also you can find it like Amazon.fr, you know, and then have it shipped from France if you want, but it's still going to, it's going to take a lot longer than the normal Amazon way uh, that people are kind of accustomed to. So they prefer just to come and get it from us. And a lot of that wouldn't be on like free shipping and stuff, you'd have to pay to get that from Europe, which we pay. I pay to get it from Europe, you know. Already, so you might as well just come to the store and 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 buy it from us. And people request, you know, in your next French order, can you look into getting books by this author or you know this title? And uh, we do that. We look into it. It takes a while for the books to come from Europe, uh, especially right now with um, shipping kind of being disrupted by the virus. But uh, we still we still receive books regularly from from france that we stock in the store uh, and then as far as local interest goes i try to stock books in the local interest section that some of them can be found in other bookstores or online but some of them are sort of specific titles that um maybe others haven't thought to carry um, you know they're more obscure they don't really know about them sometimes people come in and you know are surprised to see this this book they never heard of this you know thing and um that's kind of what we try to do and some of what we some of what we stock is interesting some of it's academic a bit more academic than you might find in a in a normal bookstore um so yeah we try to cover all the bases with that
2: you're listening to out to lunch i'm christian Mater. i'm talking to brian dupre of beausoleil books colby aber the cajun hatter it's interesting because it sounds like when you're dealing with european books or you know knowing what to find. I mean, it kind of comes down to sourcing, which kind of makes me think a bit about Colby, like your business, right? Your materials are sort of specialized to some extent. I mean, trying to make sure that you have access to, to Nutria felt and and into Beaver. I mean, like, how does this process actually work for you in terms of sourcing? I mean, how much time do you have to spend making sure you're getting the right um, materials and fabrics to make what you make?
1: Absolutely. And I did want to mention that uh, I was very impressed when I gave him a call and um he did have the Matthew McConaughey book that I just so happen to be looking for. <laughs> <laughs> our, what was the Matthew M- our last copy I was kinda shocked.
2: <laughs> what was the Matthew McConaughey book? I'm Green not familiar lights.
1: with it.
3: Um, it it's back in stock now it's store. Green lights. So <laughs> <laughs> Green
2: lights. Okay. Is it good? Do you recommend I it? haven't started
1: actually bought it for my wife.
2: <laughs> okay.
1: Okay. Good. But anyway, so um yeah for me um you know it I that I'd say that uh, f- sort of sourcing out supply um, supply sources when I when I was was my big uh, area of research initially that I probably spent the most time doing. Um, you know, it, it took maybe about four to five months of researching where I could get you know different el- the different elements that would be required to make a hat. Um, you know, a lot of that I I was just kind of also going off of. Uh, what I thought, you know, I mean, uh, some of it was overkill, some of it was the, on the wrong direction, wasn't enough, because um, I kind of, you know, had to teach myself, you know, how to make a hat in the first place through research. But uh, that being said, you know, kind of narrowing it down, um, what I ultimately learned is that most of the fur felts that are produced for uh, custom hat makers in the U.S. are all coming from the same place. There's this one little felting facility down in Tennessee. They make the, the beaver fur felts, the rabbit fur felts, um, you know, and, and a few more of the exotic options, uh, that, you know, like, like I said, you know, several hundred hat makers are kind of all sharing this one source, uh, which can make things difficult, you know, because, um, I just so happen to be grandfathered in about five years ago. There's, there's hundreds of hat makers who are just kind of on a waiting list that, that they may never reach. Um, but, Uh, You know, when it comes down to getting the right colors and things like that, you might have to wait a long time after they sell out, you know, we're going to dye some more of those in three months or something, you know, so uh, when the Nutria kind of came into the picture, I had a friend of mine who, uh, a hat maker who uh, was was getting Nutria uh, processed from South America for his hats and you know he's got a whole different thing going from that's kind of what his unique thing is. You know, he kind of has, has taken inspiration of all these different cultures. I kind of just use the Cajun culture and go from out from in, you know, from inward, you know, from in uh, to without, you know, from the culture. So, um, I said, look, you know, where we're at, Nutria is like, you know, synonymous with, with our culture now, like it, it, as a rodent, you know, it's, 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 it's an invasive species, but now it kind of is native, you know, in a sense. So, um, so we looked at, you know, uh, kind of tapping into that issue of it being an invasive species and being able to uh, sort of recycle the felts that are, uh, you know, captured as opposed to just being uh, wasted. And, uh, and now, you know, that's a whole new avenue we have of being able to, to craft and build that. Um, so everything's at least sourced out of the U.S., Um, but as much as we can do, you know, immediately locally, we try, like I make bands out of alligator skin, uh, that come right out of Lafayette, uh, you know, and I, and I also put the little cypress, uh, fleur de lis sticks in, in all of my hats as sort of a little trademark and those are made here in Louisiana too. So
2: So I kind of want to circle back to something. So you're a self made hat maker, which seems like it would be pretty complicated right? <laughs> like, it doesn't seem like it's actually that straightforward. And, and I would think, you know, historically that it would be the sort of thing that a person learned, like in an apprentice type situation, like they, you know, or they come from a family of hat makers. I mean, how do you just learn to make hats by yourself? What do you, what do, you do?
1: Well, it takes a lot of time, um, dedication, you know, I, I, I think it was about, um, I was about seven or eight months in of, of research I, I would say that I'm a, I'm a pretty diligent researcher for being an amateur and pretty good at that. So, um, so that kind of helped. And I, I've called, you know, hat makers all across the country uh, you know, Canada and really kind of, for the most part, people were hanging the phone up on me or, you know, just there's this, there was this disconnect between the older generation of hat makers that really, you know, felt that if they had, you know, helped someone learn how to you know, learn the trade, that person would become competition, even if it was, you know, 500, you know, thousand miles on the other side of the planet or something. So, um, you know, a lot of that came with just kind of research and trial and error. And I mean, I would look at, you know, uh, newspaper clippings of hat shops from Italy and, you know, translate the Italian into English and do things like that just to try to get, you know, um, a, a concept around what the process was. And then ultimately um, I had actually just had a phone call with, with my last uh, hat maker that was kind of turning me away. Um, I think it was about two hours of him just telling me why I basically would never learn how to do this. <laughs> and, uh, and, and then just after that, I got in touch with this guy in Salt Lake city. This, this, he's, he's passed now, but his name was JW Jim Wedlington, um JW hats. And so I went and see him in Salt Lake city because he was making equipment for you know, new hat makers. Um, and so he wasn't too concerned about trade secrets or anything. So I kind of went down to him to learn what kind of equipment I might best, uh, be in or, or what I might be interested in the most to kind of invest in initially. And while I was there, I was able to kind of take that, that method that I had put together and kind of execute it, you know, loosely executed with his equipment, uh, with a bit of a, you know, uh, being able to ask him some, some advice while I was doing it Um, came back down to new Iberia and um, opened up shop, you know, like you said in 2016 July and the rest is kind of history, but definitely what I'd like to add to that is that over the years after becoming more established, I was, I was certainly able to find a few more hat makers that uh, became inclined to uh, you know, give me answers to certain specific questions that, definitely uh, contributed to more of the mastering of the
2: craft. Brian, I mean, I, I guess I would think that, you know, I imagine you hadn't, and correct me if I'm wrong, you hadn't started a bookstore before either. I mean, did you find that you had to like really do research on just the ins and outs on opening a bookshop and what to expect? I mean, did you call up, you know, <laughs> the Strand or something like that. I mean, what do you do when you're you're trying to get a bookstore going, especially one like yours, right? Like it's 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 um it it, it I can't imagine it's just something you just turn on a light and know how to do it.
3: Um, actually, no, I turn on the light. No, uh, so <laughs> so I agree with Colby. I'm a bit of a researcher. Um, my background, I'm an attorney by trade, actually. Um, I still work full time as an attorney. Uh, in fact, um, so four of us on the store, three of us are attorneys. And the other one works in a bank, um, in, in banking at Iberia Bank. And so um, it's sort of like an all skills combined kind of thing. But since the, the, the store was initially sort of my idea, I took the lead on doing most of the research into the feasibility of it. And I spent a few months on a feasibility study, which included comparing Lafayette to cities across the state and country who have independent bookstores, you know, comparing the size of the population, the demographics, the um, the um, being a university town, and the number of people who hold advanced degrees who live in the area, um, comparing it to how other um, cities in the state and country have independent bookstores already, and the fact that we don't. How far away our location would be from big box bookstores in the area. So there was a lot that went into just kind of deciding if it was feasible, uh, how much rent would cost, how much we would have to make just to break even, how much we'd have to make to turn a little bit of a profit. Um, And none of us luckily set out to think, you know, oh, we'll become, you know, (laughs) wealthy from running a bookstore. None of us had that mentality. We all have careers. Uh, So this was more of just a, this will be a fun hobby for us. We all enjoy uh, this, you know, because I, I, for example, have a bachelor's degree in French lit before I went to law school. Um, And then I have a law degree from Louisiana and a law degree from France. So um, French literature has always been interesting and important to me. Um, And Blair is a self-published author. She published her first book this past year, uh, which we sell in the store, signed copies, come get one. Um, And so uh, we all just kind of put our skills together and and we all have different know how's like James is really, really good at budgeting and knowing what spreadsheets are and how to, how to keep us on task, which the three attorneys are less good at. (laughs) So knowing about budgets, you know, we don't know about budgets, but uh, we do know how to research something. So we've all put our skills together and it's been a kind of a good match. Um, And then Building a team that, that can help you out, you know, having a manager who's willing to be the boots on the ground running the store, having part timers who contribute to areas that we don't think about. Like one of our part timers is a um, um, creative writing and poetry student, you know, at UL and has really helped us amp up the short story and, and poetry section of our store, which is something that was sort of a blind spot for us. So you just surround yourself with people that will help you working with downtown Lafayette. Um, you know Anita at downtown and uh, Rachel and those folks, just um, an incredible resource that helped us get started. I'm, they, I'm sure Colby probably met with some of them too when he was planning to to move to Jefferson Street because um, we're both on Jefferson Street.
2: Yeah, I mean, it sounds like I mean when when you take the approach that you're taking, right, which is the you know, yeah, this is something I do in addition to my full-time gig, like you do have the opportunity to treat it as something you're doing sort of for the community, right? I mean, obviously you want it to be solvent. And so it's, you know, it's interesting that you're able to take that approach, right? Like this this is something that like, I mean, I think in a lot of communities, bookstores end up being uh, civic spaces, places where people gather to talk about these kinds of things. And that's what it's kind of seems like a no brainer to me that you would have an independent bookstore in downtown Lafayette. And so, I mean, I guess it's as short as you can. I mean, when you, uh, obviously it sounds like when you did your feasibility study, you figured, all right, this, this place has the makings of the kind of community that would support an independent bookstore. And has that been your experience so far?
3: Um, yeah. So we opened in October, which, um, we don't have a large enough um, set of data yet to, <laughs> to really decide because we went straight into holiday season, which was very busy for us. Uh, we're very thankful that the community supported us during the holiday season. Um, now we're sort of kind of figuring out um, what's going to be our normal month. Um, and at the same time, our, um, the bookstore is open, but the wine bar is not yet open. So the bookstore has a wine bar that's adjacent that you can access either from the street or from the store itself where we'll have our book club meetings and we'll have things like poetry readings and you know whatever things and events people would like to do, uh, we can host them in our, like you said, community gathering space. Uh, we're gonna have author signings and uh, things of that nature once we're allowed to safely gather again. And um, so it's hard to know what our normal is gonna be yet because we have no idea what it's gonna be like once the bar is open and functioning. But just being the bookstore um, right now has been um, really steady, and so we've been really happy with it. And we like our location. We're across the street from Lanyap Records, who we love, and uh, we we end up kind of with a, a similar, I think, um, clientele. People go to Lanyap, and then they come over to us, and vice versa. You know, so it's a good kind of a relationship, being next door to each other. And neither of us step on each other's toes. We don't sell records at the store. You know, a lot of bookstores sell records. we not. We don't sell records. We don't intend to sell records because yep, yeah, is our record store, you know. Yeah,
2: that's great that you guys are taking such a community-minded approach. And, and look, I mean, uh, clearly the, both of you have put a lot of time and thought into the work that you do, uh, Brian and Colby. I mean, and, and really impressive the amount of research that you put into to, to execute an idea, which it really does take so much time on the front end to get something right. And you guys are clearly doing that. So, um, Brian and Colby, it's been great having you both on the show. Thanks for joining me today on Out to Lunch Acadiana.
1: Thank you. And Colby, if you ever write a book about hat making, let me know. My mom actually um, has a children's book that I need to bring down for you to check out. And I think her next one might be about the Cajun Hatter. (laughs) There you go.
2: It's a book that writes itself. My guests on Out to Lunch Acadiana today have been Colby Aber of the Cajun Hatter and Brian Dupre of Beausoleil Books. We edited this show to fit into the time slot here on KRVS. And you can hear our unedited conversation and find out more about Brian and Colby and what they do by listening to the Out to Lunch Acadiana podcast. Podcast, which you can find anywhere you get podcasts and on our website itsacadiana.com if you want to know what we look like you can find photos from this show on itsacadiana.com and on our social media these photos were taken by jill lafleur and you can find more of her work at LaFleurphoto.com. One of these days, we'll get back to hosting Out to Lunch Acadiana in person over a plate of praline bacon at the French Press in sunny downtown Lafayette. Until then, you can go to the French Press yourself for breakfast or for lunch, or just order it for delivery. Out to Lunch Acadiana is a production of INO Broadcasting for itsacadiana.com and KRBS 88.7 FM. The producer of our show is Grant Morris. Our technical producer is Eric Merle. Our associate producer is Molly Richard. Our researcher is Maggie Mendel. I'm Christian Mader. I'm the editor of The Current, Lafayette's nonprofit source for local news. And to find out more of what matters in Lafayette, check out our website at currentla.com and sign up for our newsletter. I'll see you here again next time around our virtual lunch table for more business
0: Acadiana style on Out to Lunch Acadiana. Bye-bye.